morning to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. It's interesting that the book of Acts, the very first verse begins by talking about the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. We preachers often speak about the finished work of Christ, and well we should. But although he finished the work of redemption, there's more to the story than that. And that's what we see here in the book of Acts. It shows us that the finished work of Christ was just the beginning of the work that is still going on. And that's what makes this book so very important because it tells us that his work, the work that he began, is carried on still today through the church. And so uh, we're in the process of finishing what the Lord started, uh, so to speak. And our mission is to bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, to make him known around the world. And uh, we'd really be wise to acquaint ourselves with the adventures found in the book of Acts. And uh, whenever, whenever all is said and done, you know, we generally think about it as the Acts of the Apostles, and we talk about, you know, what they did, and, 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 and we should. But in reality, it's all about what the Spirit of God did through the people of God throughout this book. And so I want to start with the question this morning, what should a worship service be like? Think about it. I, I'm not being hypothetical. I really want you to think about it. What should a worship service be like? You, you know, tradition has a death grip on most churches, and we, you know, we basically do everything uh, alike, and it's usually the same everywhere that you go. There's the invocation, there's the offering. Uh, sometimes in some churches, like here, we have the announcements, maybe some prayer requests. We have an offering and some music, the preaching, and the benediction, and. Uh, that's what we do. It's, you know, the kind of the order that we follow. But uh, why do we do that? In other words, what do we hope to accomplish? Uh, more bluntly, why are we here today? What in the world are we doing here today? And if we're going to answer these questions, the best place to find the answers is here in the book of Acts because it tells us what God says. In Acts chapter number 2, we find one of the biggest wow moments in history taking place on the day of Pentecost. And I really wish I had time to talk about everything that is on my heart this morning. I don't know if you noticed or not, I, I asked Tim uh, to at least consider cutting out one song because I knew I was going to have a, have a hard time in getting through in... Uh, in a reasonable amount of time, and here I am taking time explaining all of this, and I shouldn't be doing that, but uh, you pray as I, try to, as I try to say what God has put on my heart this morning, and you know, sometimes we preach a message because we know that's what we ought to do, and there's sometimes we preach a message because we know that's what we ought to do. And uh, woe is unto me if we, you know, if we don't get it and get the message out there. So I figured since I'm not preaching tonight, I'd preach both messages this morning. Amen. No, no, not really. 
But in all seriousness, I can't possibly say everything I want to say. The day of Pentecost, that's significant. That is at that time, that time that they're celebrating the great harvest. This is the climax of everything. And it takes place, what happens here, takes place at that time. And remember, we've been talking about the finished work of Christ. And now it's being carried on. And we see this great harvest of souls, 3,000 people being saved on that day. Verse 5 says that there were people out of every nation under heaven. They're all assembled in Jerusalem. I want you to get the picture now. And, and they, they didn't expect what they found. They came to celebrate the Jewish feast of, of Pentecost and to express their devotion to Jehovah. They didn't come there to interact with a bunch of Christians. So get it in your mind. The stage is set for a major showdown here. And these people, the Jews from all of the different nations, they are religious, but they're lost. And no one in the world is harder to reach than lost people. This is a tough crowd that's gathered there that day. And the very people responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're there. And, And so when these Jews come to into Jerusalem, they make contact with 120 spirit-filled Christians. And they saw something that they could not explain. And they began asking questions. What what does this mean? They're confused. They don't know what in the world is going on. And as I was thinking about this week, I thought, thank God the church wasn't in the middle of a church fight. Wouldn't have that been awful, you know, the 120 in the upper room and there, there, because they just got through with the business meeting, by the way. But think about it. Had they been in the middle of a fight, had they not all been spirit-filled on that day, just think of what a disaster that could have been. All of them, talk about miracles, all of them, the whole church, they were all assembled there. And filled with the Spirit. Well, it's interesting to note how God's orchestrating this whole event. Notice that nothing's mentioned here about a man-made campaign. You know, we uh, used to anyway, and a lot of churches, they major on having Sunday school campaigns and this program and that program, everything under the sun. And uh, there's none of that here. Nothing like that going on whatsoever. And uh, everything's directed by the Lord. Now I want you to notice, I want to back up here to verse 1, just look at some verses just briefly. The last part of verse 1 says they were, they were all with one accord. Isn't that great? In one place. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, which simply implies that they're under the control of the Spirit of God. Verse 7 Because of what happened, God enabling them to speak in other languages so everybody could get the message, and they were all amazed and marveled. Verse 12, and they were all amazed, and notice they ask, what meaneth this? And of course, Peter took advantage of the opportunity and and preached, and uh, it brings us down to verse number 41. Before we begin our text. And then they that gladly 
received his word, were baptized. In the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Boy, I said at the beginning, this was a wow moment in history. What happened there would scare most people to death because most people don't like surprises. You know, we like to have everything well-ordered. We like to know what is going to happen. And God pulled the rug out from everybody, it seems like, on that day. And, and God had a different plan than anybody else did. And something unusual happened. Most of the time we're afraid of something unusual. Now, being unusual doesn't make it good, but I'm telling you, sometimes God does things that are unusual, things that we don't expect. He works in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend. And we need to learn to welcome whatever it is that God does. Because when we're willing to conform to whatever it is that God has planned, it makes an impact. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I want you to see what I'm talking about, making an impact. The title of the message this morning is An Awesome Atmosphere. Think about the atmosphere that existed on the day of Pentecost. What was going on there? Now here in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. It is a church that had, some of the members, had all of the different spiritual gifts. He said, you don't come behind in any of the spiritual gifts. So whether it was healing, speaking in other languages, prophecy, whatever it was, they had people in the church that had been so blessed by God with this gift. In other words, there's no reason for them to fail whatsoever. They could have been successful in carrying out the commission that God gave to the church. No reason for failure except for the fact that they've got a four-way split going on. They're bickering among themselves. They're arguing about who has the best gift. And the one that has one gift wants the other guy's gift. They're bickering about other issues and even threatening to go to court with one another. And it goes on and on. And Paul is trying to get them to understand the importance of them being of one accord and one mind and being directed by the Holy Spirit rather than their own personal desires. And let me tell you, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if the modern-day charismatic movement would follow what Paul teaches in this one chapter, it would kill 99% of it in a heartbeat. Because it is totally contrary to what you hear being taught today. 
But I want you to notice what he says, beginning in verse 24. He says, But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his, the secrets of his heart are made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Now remember, this is someone that came in as an unbeliever or someone that is unlearned. And when the atmosphere is such as it should be, he says they will fall down on their face and worship God and they will report, they'll spread the news to others that God is in you. God is in this place. God is in this church. We use the word atmosphere a lot of times speaking about you know the climate or the mood or the tone or the spirit of a place. Uh, even when we talk about churches. We talk about a church, you know, being as cold as ice. Or we talk about another church being really, you know, on fire, a spirit-filled church. The sad fact of the matter is too many churches are like those that Vans Habner described. He said, the, you know, the churches that they start at 11 sharp and end at 12 dull. And that's the way a lot of churches operate. The atmosphere itself says nothing of the greatness of God, but here, here we see the difference that God makes. Notice verse 25 again there. He says, they'll report that God is in you of a truth. Now think about that, because we're not always able to win everyone over to our way of thinking about everything. But if the atmosphere is as it ought to be, they will not be able to deny the fact that they've been in the presence of the Lord. And wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be wonderful? You invited your neighbor to church or you brought a relative to church. And maybe they're of some denomination that is in total disagreement with what we believe. We might never convince them of everything that we believe by way of doctrine. But we can show them... That God is in this place. Now, I, look, I'm not talking about putting on a show trying to impress people. I'm talking about the church being filled with the Spirit of God under His control. That's the way it is, was on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people were added to the church because why? Everybody saw something supernatural. I, I wonder when folks attend here, if they ever go away saying, you know, wow, I, what, I, what I experienced there was something supernatural, something unusual, something extraordinary, something that can be only explained by saying that God is in this place. In other words, there ought to be some evidence of God working in and through us. And the impression ought to be that when they go away... They'll tell others what they discover. That's the best advertisement a church can get. 
Now, I'm not talking about a man-made atmosphere. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about just trying to attract people and impress people because it isn't how loud you shout. It isn't how well you sing. It isn't the dimness of the light. It isn't the size of the crowd. It's more than excitement that's just generated by the flesh. The atmosphere is something produced by the Holy Spirit when Spirit-filled Christians do what Spirit-filled Christians do. That's when He leaps into action. 2 Chronicles chapter number 7. It's the day of the dedication of the new temple. We're all familiar with verse number 14, of course, about you know, revival, but it begins with the dedication prayer. And at that moment where God is giving evidence to the entire community that this is the house that He has chosen to dwell in, the Shekinah glory, that is a cloud, God manifesting Himself in a cloud, entered into that place, and even the priests couldn't stay, and God drove everybody out of the building. And it become evident to everybody, God's in that place. God's in that place. And I'll tell you, every church ought to be spirit-filled to the extent that others, when they leave, will say, God's in that place. They don't have to be impressed by how well we sing, how well we dress, and the things that we do. And notice what happens. Look back at verse number 24. 1 Corinthians 14, verse number 24. It says, He is convinced of all. Talking about unbelievers now. That He is convinced of all. He's judged of all. Verse 25 says, And the secrets of His heart are made manifest. Let me just try to sum up. There's three things mentioned there. And I want to just sum it all up. And the whole point is that when the Word of God is proclaimed to a congregation of Spirit-filled believers, amazing things happen. And even these unbelievers are affected. Notice they hear, they understand, they're enlightened, they're reproved, they're informed, they're convinced of their condemnation, the secrets of their heart. God just, I mean, God just slaps them in the face with the real condition of their heart. That could never happen without the Spirit of God working in the heart of people. It's something that we could never produce. Brother Preston and I could take turns preaching all day long just as hard as we can till we turn blue in the face and fell over dead, and that wouldn't be good enough. We could bring in the most high-powered choirs and singing groups that the world knows, and that would never be enough. Nothing we do would ever be enough. If God's not in it, it's not by might, it's not by power, but God says, it's by my Spirit. Nothing good's going to happen this morning or any other morning unless the Spirit of God does it. We can't do it. But, although we can't do what God alone can do, it doesn't mean that we can't do something. And it doesn't mean that our small part in that isn't significant because it is. There are things that we can't do, but there are things that we can do and things that we should do. 
And if we don't do it, we can't expect God to do anything. So, what can we do? What should we do? What must we do? Now, let's go back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 2 again. Instead of talking about all of the things that that could be said about Spirit-filled Christians, that would take hours. We could talk about, you know, the fruit of the Spirit. We could talk about, you know, being filled with the Spirit. We could talk about grieving the Spirit. We could talk about all of these things related to the Holy Spirit. But I just want to sum it all up because that is exactly, I think, what the Lord does in verse number 47 as He talks about all of these things that has happened and what is going on and the atmosphere of them meeting. Now remember, they're going out daily in the houses among the people. And they're conducting services, you might say. They're in the temple, wherever they can. They're meeting with the people. And in each instance as they meet, notice there's no musical instruments mentioned. There's no choir. There's no quartet. There's nothing going on here but the sharing of the good news about the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And there's two things that, were, that are so outstanding in God's sight that He mentions these two things in verse 47. First of all, there's piety because notice He says they were praising God. Praising God. I'm convinced that the average church member, I'm talking about the average church member across the country, not necessarily you, but the average church member does not understand the importance of praise. It's important to God. It's mentioned over and over and over. He says, enter into His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name. It's important to God. He commands us to do that. It's important to us because the Bible talks about the fact that He inhabits the praise of His people. In other words, where you find a group of Spirit-filled Christians praising God, you can mark it down, God's there. Whether you realize it or not, whether you're sensitive to His presence or not, God is there. Praise. So very, so very simple, right? I mean, little children could do that. To praise the Lord. And I wonder how many of you are really, truly, honestly, serious about praising God when you meet on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whenever it is. How many of you are really serious about that? If you could stand up here week after week, and believe me, I don't do it intentionally because... I don't try to go through the crowd and pick everybody out. But boy, whenever you're singing Amazing Grace and you look out there, it looks like they've been eating, eat, eating unripe persimmons and baptized in pickle juice and they're standing there with the frown on their face. You couldn't get a holy grunt out of them if Jesus came in the clouds. They just stand there no, no matter what's going on. How can you say you're serious about praising God whenever you don't even participate in the song service? You say, well, well, I can't sing well. I can't either, but I can sing loud. Just sing loud. Amen? The Bible doesn't tell you to sing well. It just says sing, and everybody can sing. 
God's not sitting there running some sort of a contest to see who can outperform the other one. Praise is so very important. Naturally, we want to be known for for standing by the truth. We want others to realize that we're not a compromising church giving in to all of the whims of the people. We're not going to compromise what we believe to be politically correct and to get along with the world. We're not going to do that ever. But, by the same token, there's more to being a church than just being correct in your doctrine. And we'll never be all that we can be if we're not serious about this matter of praising the Lord, worshiping God. That is the very springboard, the very motivation for everything that we do. That's the first thing, piety. But then he mentioned something. Well, I don't know how else to say it except it's just uh, shocking. And having favor with all the people. Piety and popularity. Now this is evidently a key factor in what has happened. And I'll tell you, I've been preaching like 53 years now. I've never heard a sermon about this. I've never even heard a part of a sermon making reference to this. Having favor with all of the people. And yet it's clearly something God wants us to consider. He's wanting us to understand that what the people saw that day, not just the people, you know, that were right there at the moment in the upper room, but all of the people that had come into the city from all of the different nations, and what they saw in that early church was so impressive that it gained their attention, it gained their respect, it gained their their favor. They were admired even though they were not in absolute agreement about every little thing under the sun. They saw their devotion. They saw their sincerity. They saw their charity. And what a sight to behold. Watch these Christians as they would meet every single day. And there were those that were without and the others that sold their possessions and to supply the needs of those that had nothing, they sold their goods and took what they had and shared it with them. And and all of these people from all of the nations, they're watching all of this. You see, their actions, their devotion, their sincerity made them stand out from the general population. And and folks, make no mistake about it, the world is watching us. This community is watching this church. And we have an obligation to prove ourselves. That's the point. Remember when Jesus said to His disciples in John 13, 35... By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. I've heard preachers totally butcher that and say it means something that it doesn't mean. That has nothing to do with them being convinced that we're Christians because of how much we love the people in the community. That's not what it says. 
By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. In other words, there's a means whereby we can show others that we are indeed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is it? Your love for one another. In other words, it's like those that are on the outside are watching us and how we love one another. That's what is impressive. Because I'll tell you right now, we Christians can be a pretty sorry bunch. I mean, we're not nearly what we ought to be. We've got a lot of faults. And whenever the world seeing us loving each other in spite of those faults and working through our problems and what have you, that convinces them that we really are the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they watch how we relate to God, whether we're praising God or not. And by the way, our praising God shouldn't stop when the service is over. It ought to be a regular part of our life. We ought to live in a spirit of praise. So the world is watching how we relate to God. The world is watching how we treat one another. They're on the outside looking in, watching how you treat each other. But then they watch how we treat others, especially them. Notice it says, having favor with all the people. Now, I'm not an expert in grammar or anything else, but if I'm not mistaken, all means all, right? And he's been talking about the impact and everything that's going on in the, in the city of Jerusalem. And to me, this is one of the most remarkable statements found anywhere in the Bible. Oh, I know, you can look back to Daniel and the three Hebrew children in the walls of Jericho. You can think about Samson. You can think about all of those miracles. To me, this is just as remarkable as anything that, that I've mentioned. It's amazing. It seems impossible for a church to find favor with all of the people. How does something like that happen? Look, it doesn't mean that the entire community was in agreement on everything. It doesn't mean that doesn't say that. It doesn't mean that everybody in town was converted to Christianity. And it doesn't mean that there would never be any opposition. It simply means that at that particular time, they had gained the favor of all of the people. There was an atmosphere in that church, something about that church, something that no human could really explain apart from God. I don't think that we think enough about the attractive power of a Spirit-filled church. And let me tell you, if we're, listen, if we're not, if we're not a Spirit-filled church, There's no reason for us to exist. That is the justification for our existence. Because if we're not fulfilling God's given purpose in life, there's no reason for us to exist. We're nothing more than a glorified social club. No reason. 
We might as well just disband. Send all the money to missionaries somewhere. Close down the building because there's no reason to really exist. The sad thing is, there are a lot of churches today that conduct themselves in a way that simply says we really don't care about anyone else. That I've been in churches like that. I've preached in churches like that. In fact, it is rather common whenever you get away in the hills, you know, back in the Ozarks or over in Kentucky and some of those little country churches and 90% of the congregation is made up of a, a, one family, you know, and their attitude is us four and no more. We don't want anybody else. They just don't care about anyone else. Well, that attitude stinks. If we don't care about anyone else, why do we even exist? As I often said, we never get a second chance to make a good first impression. And by the way, first impressions are usually last impressions. How we treat people matters. It matters to, to the people and it matters to God. Just use your imagination for a moment. Let's just suppose that Jesus himself walked into the service. Now, I know that's a stretch of the imagination, but play along with me and think about it anyway. You know, I I know we'd just turn it all over to him, right? And we would worship him. That's what we would do. We'd treat him with the very highest honor that no man deserves. I think we'd all agree that we would want to make him feel welcome that he is an honored guest. Right? So in light of that, let me ask you another question. How do you treat our guests and our other members? You don't know how difficult it is for me to bite my tongue and to keep from saying some things that that might need to be said, in fact. Uh, I'm not sure about it, so I won't say it, but let me tell you. If I had a list of all of the dumb things some members of this church have said to run people off, it'd make some of you so mad you couldn't stand it. Those of you that said those things would be mad at me for revealing the stupid things you said. You say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about somebody. No, I won't. I'm not going to go there because... Look, all I would do, if nothing else, drive a wedge between you and somebody else. That's not my purpose this morning. I just want you to understand that when you say something to somebody, it's serious business, and you've got to be careful what you say. It's so it's heartbreaking when, when, as the pastor, you contact somebody that's been in the church, somebody that used to be a member of the church, somebody that's coming back to the church, and you contact them and you say, Wow, it was so good to see you. I hope you come back. Nope, never, you'll never see me there again. Why? Now, there's at least a few of you, you know why, because you know you're the guilty party, because I've already mentioned it to you. And I'm going to want to challenge you, don't ever let something like that happen again. To drive people away from the church by saying something that is so foolish. How do you, how do you think we ought to treat our guests? 
Well, you say, preacher, the analogy about Jesus, that's really far-fetched. No, no, it's not really. Listen to this. Over in Matthew 18, 5, Jesus said, And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. How about that? You want to, there's a lot of different ways to tell to tell how good of a person a person really is. One of the best ways is to see how they treat children. And boy, it's impressive whenever you see folks, you know, that they've always got something nice to say to little kids. And it's heartbreaking to see some adult that they just don't have time for those little kids. Never got a, never got a word to say to them whatsoever. Jesus said, whoever receives one, such a little child in my name, receives me. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 25. I can't read all of these verses, but you'll get the message. Matthew chapter number 25. Remember, this is the Lord himself speaking. And what he says here ought to get our attention. Let's start verse number 43. No, Verse 42, and I was, I was a hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. And I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. And then shall they say also, also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we the hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? And then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. That ought to shake us to our core and forever change the way that we look at other people. I read about a church that had what, what they called uh, a first impressions ministry. And it was made up of a group of people that acted like, you know, friendly ushers. Great idea. I'm not opposed to that. But I'll tell you a whole lot better idea is the fact that we ought to be a first impression ministry-minded church where every member is part of the team. I'm afraid that in some churches the attitude is, you know, because we love telling people about you know, the Lord, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. We, oh, we love to do that because why? Well, it's our obligation, our responsibility to do that. And so there are a lot of churches, you know, they love to tell you that God loves you, but by what they do, it's like saying, God loves you, but we don't. And if we're going to win people, they have to see Christ in us. Back to our story, this early church, this was its time to shine. It's the day of Pentecost, that day appointed by the Lord and the Spirit-filled church meeting together and God working through them. And let me tell you, it wasn't always so because persecution is just around the corner. In other words, they had to strike while the iron was hot to take advantage of the opportunity while the door was open to seize the day. 
It's not going to stay like that. They gained the favor of the people, but it's, it's fleeting. It's just for a while. Because the same people that respected them on that day in a short time would be turning against them and persecuting them. And even so, we need to understand that we have a great responsibility to reach our generation for Christ. And the time is short. In other words, the door is closing. The window is, is going to disappear. That's why Jesus said, I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. Because He said, the night cometh when no man can work. One of these days, our door of opportunity will close. I mean, it could happen in a number of different ways. I've seen churches over the years that I thought, you know, would still be going strong until the day Jesus came and something happened and all of a sudden they had a church fight and they disbanded. Don't you ever think that couldn't happen here or anywhere else? It could happen. There's a lot of things that could happen. The community could turn against us because of our stand against certain sins or or a number of different things. The government, and by the way, for you young people, you might as well get ready for it. If Jesus doesn't come, this day's coming, that it will cost you something for you to stand up and preach the same message as Brother Preston and I preach here. It'll cost you because it'll be against the law. And you're going to have to make a decision whether you're going to obey God or cave in to the pressure of the law. And this example of this Spirit-filled church ought to encourage each and every one of us. It ought to to give us hope. We can't, look, we can't change the world. But God can change our little part of the world through us. Now here's the, here's the problem, and it's twofold. Number one, we're too easily satisfied with what's done in a church service. I believe that with all of my heart. In other words, I mean simply that we're content with however it ends. I'm sorry, I believe that. I. There are times that we know there will be a number of unsaved people here by their own profession. They admit, I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. And we, you know, we go through the entirety of the whole service and, and uh, it comes down to a close. We have the benediction and they walk out the door lost. Prayers go unanswered, needs go unmet, lives go unchanged, souls remain unsaved. And I'm sorry, but too many times it just seems like, and we're just fine with that. Besides, you know, besides the service is a little late and I'm getting hungry and I wish he'd shut up. And God, help us to never have that kind of an attitude. Nothing in the world is more important than people coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we ought not be satisfied. I've often, uh, several times, talked about a little old place called Fairgrove, Missouri, a population of 400, and I think, I believe it's 404, single digits anyway, 
on the last part, 404 or 5. And uh, we decided God wanted us to start a church there, and we did. And, and this might not sound like a big deal to some folks, but that first year that we were there, we had over 52 professions of faith. That's pretty good for a little church meeting in that first little building that we rented there from a florist shop. It was about 15 feet wide and about maybe 25, 30 foot long, and we were packed in there like sardines and and uh, finally started looking for property. And you said, well, how, how in the world did that happen? Let me tell you, the, I, it wasn't my preaching. Because at that time in my ministry, I was somewhat of a nutcase sometimes, and uh, I, I can't take any credit for it. And a couple of things. Number one was getting out there in the community week after week after week after week, knocking on the doors and talking to people about Christ. But I think the main thing was if we, if we went a week or especially two weeks and nobody had made a profession of faith, I didn't have to say, would you all come down here and pray? We didn't have anybody saved last week. Let's all get together and pray. I didn't have to say a word about that. There'd be 10, 15 people lined up when the invitation was given. Why? Because nobody was saved last week and they knew. They knew somebody was there that didn't know Christ as their Savior. That little red-headed girl that, that Bev took home that was molested by her daddy and, and, and somebody like that. They were there. And they left. Went back into that hellhole. Unsaved. Why do you have to beg people to come and to pray for the lost when they're lost? What worst thing could, could happen to them? That's as bad as it can get. You know, if they had cancer, if the doctor said, you've only got two weeks to live, man, we'd be down here slobbering all over the, all over the place praying for them. God heal their body. I'm not against that, but I'm saying that their soul is a whole lot more important than their body is. We're just too easily satisfied. But compounding that problem is this, and that's the fact it seems that we're, we just refuse to deal with whatever it is that hinders. And let me tell you, it doesn't take very much to hinder. The Holy Spirit is grieved a whole lot easier than what you and I think. You don't have to stand out here on the street corner calling God ugly names to grieve His heart. All you have to do is disobey His will. Let me give you an example over in 1 Peter chapter number 3. Verse 7, and he's speaking here about husbands, but he's been speaking here in regards to the women also. And he says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, that is your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Now notice this, that your prayers be not hindered. That your prayers be not hindered. How important... How important are our prayers? They're everything. If, if, look, if we're not, if we're not a, 
in such a spiritual condition that we can't have our prayers answered, we're out of business. Everything depends on prayers. And here he's talking about something that would hinder our prayers. It just happens to be in this case, he's speaking to the husbands about their wives and the way they treat their wives, but it could be speaking about the wives treating their husbands. It could be speaking about how you treat another member of the church. It could be how you treat a guest or anyone else. It doesn't make any difference. It's the sin of the thing that would hinder our prayers and keep God from doing what God wants to do. The Bible says, you know, Israel limited the Holy One of Israel. Put limitations on God. And that's what we so often do. We limit what God wants to do in the service or through the church. And we just say, no, we're we're satisfied right here where we are. That's why I often say sometimes what happens during the service is decided before we ever get here. Before we ever sing, before I ever preach. It's already determined. 1 Peter 3, now verse 8. We see what it is that hinders our prayer, but notice verse 8. Finally, be ye all. That includes me and you. Be ye all of one mind. Did you read, everybody read the pastor's pen this morning? I really hope you did. Why, does some, why, why is it some of you think it's just okay if you sit there like a knot on the log when we've got guests and you won't move six inches to let them know how much we care, how thrilled we are they're there? Now look, listen to me carefully. I know there are people with physical problems that cannot be up moving around. So don't you dare think I'm judging everybody in that regards. I'm not. I'm talking about people that are healthy and people that could if they would and they won't. Just keep them at arm's length. I mean, we'd never say that. We'd never say, I wish you didn't, didn't come. We wouldn't say that, but that's the message we send. Be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise, blessing. In other words, overcoming the evil with good. Knowing that ye are there unto called, that ye should inherit. A blessing for he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil in his lips that they speak no guile. And we could go on and on and on. I'm telling you the solution in a nutshell is that we love others. Why? Well, because Christ loved us. He loved us unconditionally. There's no reason, no reason why God should love us except for His grace. He loved us in that while we were yet sinners. If the Lord could love us like that, we ought to love each other.
regardless of what the other person has done, regardless of how they hurt you, regardless of uh, whatever it is. You don't have to like their ways, but you can love them. Because in loving them, you find the best opportunity to help them. We don't, we don't ever help them by returning evil for evil. It just compounds the problem. May God baptize us as it were in a spirit of love here and may we follow His leadership. And I pray to God that it will break our heart when we go week after week after week. No profession of faith. No one stirring the baptismal waters. No one joining the church. Now maybe you're here today and you're the guest and you're thinking, wow, why did I show up here today? This must be a horrible church. No, I think, it's, I, think, I think it's the very best church in all this community. I love this church with all of my heart. I wouldn't want to be a member of a different church anywhere. I thank God for it every single day. But I'm telling you, this church or any other church, we can't afford to just sit back and be content where we are Knowing, knowing there is so much more God can do and so much more He would do if we'll get rid of all of these hindrances. Be careful what you say. Treat our guests like they're honored guests because they are. You might not like the kind of car they drive or the clothes they wear. They might have tattoos all over their body. You know, they, they might be in you know, in a drug treatment program. They might be really mixed up in their sexuality and a thousand and one other things. That doesn't give you the right to not love them and treat them with decency and respect. That's the only hope we'll ever have of reaching people like that. By the way, whatever it is they're doing is no worse than somebody that is self-righteous and depending on their goodness to get them to heaven. Those are the ones that Jesus rebuked in the harshest tones. Let's all stand. I don't even know what to, I don't even know what to say. If you're here today, let me just add this. This message has been directed toward Christians and in, in this church in particular. And you might feel like you've been left out of the whole service, but let me assure you, you haven't because it's because of people like you, people that are unsaved, that we're so concerned about how this church functions as a church. And more than anything else in all of the world, we want to see you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you can. He loved you so much that He died on the cross to save you from your sins. And He'll save you today if you'll simply trust Him. And I beg you, don't walk out of here today without Jesus. It'll be the worst mistake that you've ever made. And the most wonderful thing that could ever happen is for you to say yes to Jesus. I don't care if you say, Lord, I sure don't like that preacher. I don't ever want to hear him again. That's fine with me, just as long as you trust Jesus.
You say, well, I, you know, I, I, I don't think I'll ever join this church. That's fine. Just trust Jesus. Just trust Him. Our Father, we pray this morning that you'll help, help me, first of all. Help me to be a better example to these folks. Help me, to, help me Lord, to care more about others. Help me to, to be able to do more for your, your glory. And I pray you'll help us all together as we work together and labor together and worship together. Help us that we'll be a light to this community. That others might see Jesus in us. That we might be a light that will draw them to the place of eternal salvation. I pray you'll remove every hindrance here this morning. Break our hearts over the lost condition of those that are around us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While we sing.